He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction upon our study. Our Father, we are so very grateful, so very thankful that you have given your Son to us, that he has died on the cross for our sins, paid the penalty so that sin is no longer the issue, the issue is faith in him. That in him we have new life, as we are studying in our passage in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, that that we have been uh, given new life in him and that we have been raised with him together, and that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. Father, there's so much here for us to think about, to reflect upon, to understand, that impacts the distinctiveness of our identity as church-age believers. But we must understand what these phrases mean, the impact on our thinking and on our lives, and how it transforms our our understanding of the uniqueness of the church age and the unique spiritual life that has been given to us because we are in Christ together, Jew and Gentile, united uniquely in one person forever, a unique work, and that we have been raised and seated together with Christ and just what that means and It just pulls together so much. Help us to think our way through the passages of Scripture that we study, that our understanding of our identity, our mission, our ministry today may be totally transformed by your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I return from a few Sundays off, I often think that you'll never let me go again. I was all prepared for this morning before I left, but while I was gone. I had time to study, and seven pages of notes expanded to 20. See, it's dangerous to have time off when you can just reflect on the Word and have time to study and and think about several things. So open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, yes, we are still studying in Ephesians, but we have to understand the significance of this phrase that we are seated together with him uh, in the heavenlies. What this psalm will describe for us is something that was alluded to in the hymn that we sang, the first hymn that we sang, Psalm 106, 
praise him, praise him. And in the third stanza, there is a focus on his something in the future. And that act in the future is the crowning of Christ as king. He is not crowned as king yet. His role as king is related to his taking the kingdom. Now, there's a lot of confusion today about the kingdom of God. In the 19th century, liberals co-opted this term and applied it in a post-millennial way. Now, you all know what post-millennialism is. Post means after. Millennium refers to the thousand-year reign of Christ. In amillennialism, which means no literal millennium, they did not have a literal 1,000 years. They just thought that that 1,000 years was sort of a uh, symbolic term for a time of perfection. Out of amillennialism grew another view called postmillennialism, which again does not take that thousand-year term literally, but takes it as referring to this perfect time and that indeed Jesus doesn't return to establish his kingdom, that the church establishes the kingdom, and then Christ will return after the end of the kingdom and he will bring judgment with him at that time. We will see that that does not fit at all with Scripture. Neither postmillennialism nor amillennialism fit at all with Scripture. Both of them are, are a corruption of what Scripture teaches because they are grounded in a non-literal interpretation of Scripture. When somebody tells you that a thousand years doesn't mean a thousand literal years, you know that they have... Uh, escaped literal interpretation, and they're now making up their own theology. So we have this important reality that Christ rules when he returns. Revelation 19 describes that second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation, and that he comes to establish his kingdom. It is not simply a divine kingdom. It is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and types and it speaks of a Jewish geophysical kingdom, a literal kingdom, where the greater son of David, the Messiah, will sit on David's throne. That is, he rules over a Jewish kingdom from Jerusalem and also from there the whole world. That is the focus of Jesus' future ministry as king. Now, there are three titles, as this hymn alludes to, when it says, crown him, crown him, and then it says, prophet, priest, king. Those are the three distinctive roles of the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. At his first coming, Jesus functioned as a prophet, challenging, convicting, rebuking his people, the Jewish people, for their rejection of Moses and the Mosaic Law and its teaching, and then for that they rejected him as Messiah. They arrested him, crucified him, and uh, the kingdom was postponed. During this intervening age, Jesus is not functioning as prophet anymore. He is still prophet, but he's not functioning as prophet. Neither is he functioning as king. He's functioning as a priest. Now, that is so important because the psalm that we are looking at this morning 
focuses us on this key phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians 2, 6, that we are seated together with him. What does that mean, that we are seated together with him? We have to understand the role and responsibilities of the Messiah, priest, king, as seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so these themes are reflected in hymns we sing, reflected in other things. So this morning, that is what we are beginning to look at, is the significance of his session, not for rulership. He's not seated on the Father's throne. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will not be seated on his throne until he comes at the second coming. So in Ephesians 2.6, we see that we have been raised up together with him, and he made us, that is God the Father, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is just a short phrase, and yet... Paul is assuming that his readers had been well taught. Who taught them? He did. He spent a couple of years, at least in Ephesus, teaching them, and this would have been something that he communicated to them. The audience that sat under Paul was not like modern audiences that get some sort of frivolous, shallow, trivial uh, sermonette for Christianettes on Sunday morning. But he taught the scriptures in depth over a period of time so that they truly understood the scripture. So he could just put a phrase out there and they understood what I'm taking the time to teach over a period of six or seven hours. He had done that homework. So all he has to do is use this phrase and all these things came to their, the forefront of their mind and they were, they were grasping it. This whole idea is that Christ, on his ascension to heaven, which we've studied over the past two or three lessons, on his ascension to to heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father. This reality is alluded to and referenced numerous times in the New Testament, at least 16 times. And I have, as more I read, the more I pick up another allusion or reference. And so here are these passages that, and many of them directly quote from Psalm 110.1, Acts 2.33 to 34, Acts 5.31, Acts 7.55 to 56, Romans 8.34, Ephesians 1.20, Ephesians 2.6, and Ephesians 4.8 through 11. So Paul builds on this whole teaching of ascension as he goes through this epistle. So there are aspects of this that I'm going to not talk about as much now as I will when we get to Ephesians uh, 4, 8 to 11. Colossians 3, 1, and especially Hebrews. I don't think we can grasp a lot of what the writer of Hebrews is saying if we don't grasp the Old Testament passages that are quoted again and again in, in Hebrews and uh, Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 110.4 are mentioned and quoted several times in Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3 and 13, Hebrews 8.1, Hebrews 10.12, Hebrews 12.2, First Peter 3.22, Revelation 3.21 later re- alludes to this in one of the letters to the seven churches and then in Revelation 
12:5. In Revelation 3:21, Jesus says, "To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne." But he's not on his throne yet. Because the next phrase says, as, also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That is very important. He is not seated today on his throne. He is not seated on the throne of David. It is not about rulership. The throne of David relates to that third ministry of Christ, that he, that he is king. That is not what's happening today. What is happening today is his priestly, his high priestly ministry from the right hand of the Father as revealed in Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 110.4. And that's crucial for understanding our identity today. We must understand this. We are not here to bring in the kingdom. We are here to function in our identification with Christ in his high priestly ministry. All of this is about the priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of every every single believer. What we've seen is that there were actually two ascensions, as I alluded to in the past, that in John 20, 17, after the resurrection, when Mary and Martha came to the, uh, came to the tomb, or when Mary came to the tomb, rather, Mary Magdalene, uh, she wants to grab hold of Jesus. He tells her, don't cling to me. I haven't ascended to the Father. So between that early in the morning and later in the day when he appears to his disciples, he had ascended to the Father and came back. This is just a quick ascension to wrap up some things related to his salvation work on the cross. And this is not talked about much in in the Scripture at all. But he tells his disciples at that time that they can touch him to behold his hands and his feet, handle him and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see before me. And so at that time they did that. So that's different from the the ascension that we refer to, which is described in passages such as Mark sixteen nineteen to 20, Luke 24, 50 to 51, and then Acts 1, 9, and 10 which gives us another detailed look along with Luke 24:50 to 51 of what happened at the ascensions that as they watched him he's taken up he's received into the heaven the father brings him back a cloud receives him out of their sight and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up behold two men stood by them in white apparel now what those two men tell him in acts one eleven is that he's going to come back in the same way. So that's talking about the second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming. Now what we're doing, we're focusing on the ascension, understanding and the ascension and the session, understanding what the Bible speaks specifically about this session now. He doesn't take him long, just nanoseconds eventually to get to the throne of God, and he sits at the right hand. So we've looked at the background of the ascension, and asking and answering the question, what happened to God's plan? That is God's plan for Israel when the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected and crucified. It's postponed. It doesn't continue on the same trajectory. The kingdom has been postponed. It was re- The offer was rejected by the Israelites. The kingdom was postponed, and the disciples still don't get it. They still don't recognize when it's going to happen, as exhibited in their uh, almost final question to the Lord, is is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They understand that the kingdom is a Jewish kingdom. It's not this 
spiritual kingdom on the earth of the church, which is what amillennialism teaches because they reject the distinction between Israel and the church. It's not a kingdom on the earth that is brought in by the church as is taught by post-millennialists. And by the way, if you are homeschooling your children, you need to be very careful because a lot of otherwise excellent homeschool material is written by post-mills, post-mill reconstructionists. And they have done some good work in other areas, but you always have to be careful because this is an underlying hook that has somehow distracted, I know, a number of Christians who've gotten drawn into post-millennialist reconstructionism as a result of not being adequately warned about that as part part of the text. So Acts 1-6, they're looking forward to a, to a kingdom, but they don't realize what, that something is coming in between. And that is the purpose of this inter-Advent age, that the ascension and session of Christ is significant for what this new thing, this mystery, this previously unrevealed church age is accomplishing. And as such, we are believers in Christ, and we need to understand that. And as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, one of the important things that happened that's the reason, one of the many reasons for the ascension is Jesus said he had to go to the Father to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And it is that arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that sets apart every church age believer as distinct from any believer previously in history and following us because the Holy Spirit will be taken away from the world at the rapture. Tribulation saints are not going to have the same ministry of the Holy Spirit in the tribulation period as we have today. This is distinctive for church age believers. So what we have to do is understand the Old Testament background. This pulls together a number of different things, but I want to isolate it to four passages. And it'll take us a couple of weeks to go through these these passages, but I want to give you a quick overview so you see how they fit together. The first passage is the one we're looking at this morning, Psalm 110. The most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is crucial for understanding many aspects of what Christ is doing today and what he will do uh, in the future. And Psalm 110 shows two things. It shows that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father until God finishes preparing his enemies for the final defeat. Okay, a second thing it's going to show is that Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and that is directly related to his session. Now, Psalm 110 has some debates about whether or not it's messianic, and I'll get to that in a minute. But... I remember in the spring of of 1979, I believe, that I was scheduled to take a course on Christology, the study of Christ, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, and ecclesiology, the theology of the church. So that was our systematic theology course for that semester. And I went in, and they had just hired a new professor. He had taught there before a little bit. And I'd read some articles by him, and he was pretty solid. 
And he established something in that semester that I've always followed. It was a pattern of how you do theology, how you do systematic theology. You don't start with your theological system and read it into the scripture, which is what most, nearly all systematic theologies do. You start and you look at the critical texts. You look, and what he did in Christology is he started us off with going through messianic prophecies. And he looked at Psalm 110, then he took us to Psalm 2, then he took us to Daniel 7. He didn't tie it all together the way I'm doing it with this, but he went through these passages, and then Philippians 2, 5 through 11 with the kenosis, in other words, and showed that what these passages taught, and then you come to your conclusions and organize it into systematic theology. I'm not going to mention his name because within 10 years he'd gone to the dark side, but his methodology at that point was very solid. It was when he, like many other professors, went to a secular school and got a second doctorate that his whole theology and approach got rather rather clouded and, and muddied. But he did a good job, and I'll never forget that. I sat there on the front row. I sat in the corner seat in front of the lect- lectern and... Some guy named Tommy I sat on my left hand. So we had a great time in that course. So Psalm 110 shows that Christ sits at the right hand of God until, that's an important word, until he finishes doing what he's doing today. Okay? Then we get Christ as the uh, military general coming to defeat the enemies of God. The second passage we'll briefly look at now, we'll look at it in more detail when we get to Ephesians 4, 8 to 11, is Psalm 68, 18, which depicts the fact that when Christ ascended, then he gave gifts to the church, the distribution of spiritual gifts to the church. Without the ascension, you don't have the giving of the Holy Spirit, and you don't have the giving of spiritual gifts. That is all related to his role as priest, in this church age, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, after waiting at the right hand of the Father, the Son of Man, eventually, the time will come, eventually he will step up before the Father, who is described as the Ancient of Days in Daniel seven thirteen through 14. And it is, that po- is at that point that the Father gives him the title deed to the earth. That's what's described in Revelation chapter 5. It is at that point that the Father gives him the title deed to the earth and authorization to go to defeat his enemies. So he is seated and he is waiting. We are seated with him, so we too are to wait. It's all related to that priesthood ministry for the church age. So that's Daniel seven thirteen through 14, which we'll get to probably uh, next week. Some of these we can hit in a little more summary fashion. And then Psalm 2, which shows the Messiah's victory over his enemies. And that relates to the last part of Psalm 110, verses 5 through 7, that I'll briefly t- talk about today, but I'll connect the dots to Psalm 2 uh, next time or when we get to that particular point. So that's that's the overview. We, we're looking at four passages, pulling them together to reach an understanding of what's happening with the session of Christ, what is going on, why is he waiting, what is he waiting for, and what is our role since we're identified with him in that waiting period. What is the issue? Why is this so important?
Now, when we look at Psalm 110, we have to realize that this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. That is critical. That means that again and again, across the spectrum of biblical writers, there is a reference back to Psalm 110 as important. It is mentioned seven times, either Psalm 110.1 or Psalm 110.4, mentioned seven times in Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 3, and 13, Hebrews 5, 6. That should be Hebrews 5, 6, and 10, Hebrews 6, 20, Hebrews 7, 17, 21, and 28, and 12, 2, as well as uh, Hebrews 10, 3. I left that out. That is one we'll get to in a little bit this morning. And then and Psalm 110, 1 is directly quoted four times in Matthew. Got Hebrews 10, 12. See, I've got it down here in the bottom here, but it should be up here as well, Hebrews 10, 12. Psalm 110.1 is directly quoted four times in Matthew 22.44, Mark 12.36, Luke 20.42 and 43. Now, that's an important passage. All three of those are in the context of this this, uh, bogus interrogation of Jesus by the Sadducees, and they come up with this this fake situation uh, in order to try to trap Jesus. And they say that there's a woman, and she's married. Now, and that husband dies. Now, the eventual question is who's married to her in the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. That's why it's bogus. They're just making this up to try to trap Jesus. So they come along and say she's married, and that husband dies, and she marries again, that husband dies, and this happens seven times. She has seven husbands that all die, and that ought to be something that should go before the DA because that's rather suspicious that all of her husbands are dying. But when they get to it, after they've created this bogus scenario, they ask Jesus, well, whose husband is she going to be in the resurrection? Okay? And they don't believe in resurrection. Now, Jesus goes to Psalm 110, and he says, as David says in Psalm 110. That's what's important about all of these verses, is they identify clearly in the lips of Jesus that David wrote the psalm, which a lot of modern, intelligent bright scholars of the day say, well, David really didn't write this. Okay? Conservatives. Good, some good men. Good teach in other areas, but here they just completely blow it. So in all the Gospels you have that. Acts 2, 34 and 35 and alluded to in a number of other passages, Matthew 26, 64, Ephesians 1, 20, Colossians 3, 1, Hebrews 1, 3, 8, 1, 10, 12, and 12, 2. Okay, so you should have gotten all that written down by now. So we're going to come to Psalm 110. We have to ask the question, well, who wrote Psalm 110? Because this is important. It starts off a Psalm of David in the English, which is an excellent translation. However, as I just alluded to, you do have a number of evangelical scholars. You know, the, you know what a scholar, a definition of a scholar is? Somebody who uh, puts forth ideas that, that are almost impossible to believe, but they do it in academic arrogance. So that is a scholar. It's interesting how that term has changed its meaning since I was a student in seminary. When I went to Dallas Seminary, we thought of men like Lewis Berry Chafer, John Walver, Charles Ryrie, Stan Toussaint, Dwight Pentecost, as scholars. They were scholars of the text. They knew the Bible. When you read them, they did a good job biblically. 
scholarship changed its definition due to the influence of a number of of uh, men who, for a period of the 20th century, were sent off to study theology and Greek and Hebrew in European universities. And when they came back, they they suddenly changed the definition of scholarship so that today, and I know a man in this city who's at another doctrinal church who teaches in the uh, language department at the Dallas Seminary campus here, who told the pastor there, man, you all would know, but I'm not going to name his name. Uh, He didn't like it any more than I do. He told that pastor that none of those men I just mentioned were scholars. A scholar is someone who knows what everybody has said about the passage. I don't care what everybody has said about the passage. I care what the passage says. That's biblical scholarship. And so this is one of the things that has destroyed modern seminary education And one of the reasons why we have to have new seminaries like Chafer Theological Seminary in order to get really back to the Bible. And uh, I know of people who have had excellent articles rejected from uh, the Dallas Seminary Journal because it didn't fit this modern view of scholarship. They didn't deal with what everybody else said about the text. They just said what the text said. So... Psalm 110, why do we say that David wrote it? Well, first of all, it's clearly stated in the superscript of verse 1. In the Hebrew, it is a, it is a word, the word David is prefixed by a preposition, the letter Lamed in Hebrew, which is pronounced just L. L. It means to or it means from, and it is called the Lamed Octorus are the Lamed of authorship, and it is used almost exclusively in the Psalms to indicate the author of the Psalm. So you really have to uh, go a long way in a convoluted path to say this isn't talking, this isn't saying David wrote it, this is saying it's about David, okay, which is what they do. But that just completely uh, ignores how this is used throughout the Psalms. The second is that no less an authority than Jesus Christ said that David wrote it. Now, how these guys, and I'm talking about, now most of the guys at Dallas Seminary who screw up this psalm do believe in Davidic authorship, but there are many others who, conservative evangelicals who reject Davidic authorship. Matthew 22:43. this is the context I was talking about a minute ago, When Jesus is asked this question by the Sadducees, he said to them, How then does David, by the Spirit, call him Lord? Saying, now that seems pretty clear, but just so nobody misses Jesus' affirmation of Davidic authorship, in verse 25 he says again, 2245 he says again, If David then calls him Lord... How is he his son? So it's really clear. Matthew twelve thirty-five to 37 says the same thing, and so does Luke twenty forty-one to 44. So three of the Gospels state it the same way. They affirm that Jesus said David wrote the psalm. Now, that's important because when you reject Davidic authorship, see, if David is the, is the author, then David is talking about somebody else. 
But if David isn't the author, then you can say that David is talking about himself, which is one of the things that they're talking about. And so there is this, as you all know, as I've told you many times, that there is this debate today over whether any of the Psalms are messianic. Now, what I mean by that and what the language means by that is we'll see in this next quote that I have from an evangelical scholar by the name of Trimper Longman III. In his work, he says, he denies that this is messianic, that any psalms are messianic. That may surprise some of you. Surprises the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, except he's omniscient, so he saw it coming. Some people believe that a few psalms are messianic in the narrow sense. Okay, here he's going to give us a definition. I thought this was a great definition of what we mean when we say a messianic psalm. He says, that is, some psalms are prophetic and have no direct message of significance for the Old Testament period. That is a good definition. A messianic psalm is not talking about some near fulfillment in the, time, in the biblical time frame in the Old Testament, but is specifically looking through the corridors of time and giving us information about the future Messiah. We reject the notion of dual fulfillment. Dual fulfillment came into the interpretive framework for evangelicals in the 20th century as a way to get around some of these problems and to avoid sticking with what the text says. So he says uh, in this definition, Messianic Psalms are prophetic. They have a direct message of significance only for the future, but no direct message of significance for the Old Testament period. They only predict the coming Messiah. That's what makes it a messianic psalm. He further says, then, his opinion, no psalm is messianic in this narrow sense. What a surprise to the Holy Spirit. But that dominates scholarship today. That's why at the recent pre-trib uh, conference in Dallas, the pre-tribulation study group uh, met, at, met in Dallas about a month ago, a little less than a month ago, and the theme this year was Messianic Psalms. We had Michael Rydelnik, who's the head of the Jewish Studies Department at Dallas Seminary, who has a book out called Messianic Hope, which deals with all these problems in a very technical way, very, very good, great scholarship, and he and another professor of mine from uh, Dallas Seminary, Ed Bloom, edited a collection of articles written by a number of scholars on dealing with Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament called an Encyclopedia of Messianic Prophecies. And just starts with Genesis and goes all the way all the way through the Old Testament and it is it is outstanding. So this is the problem today and uh Dr. Rydelnik started seminary a couple of years after me. I was dense when I went to seminary, I had no idea that I had professors who didn't believe in messianic prophecies in the narrow sense. Now, when I started reading all this material that that, uh, Michael was coming up with, I realized, because he said that when he started seminary two years after I did, and Tommy I says the same thing, we just didn't know this stuff was going on, and here we were sitting there. That's how it's... uh, that's how it's presented. It, they say, oh, yeah, that passage talks about the Messiah. But what they really mean is New Testament writers saw that there was a similarity between that passage and Jesus, so they co-opted it as something that applied to Jesus. They reject the narrow view. And many of my 
uh, seminary professor, I was an Old Testament major. Many of my Old Testament profs did not believe in a narrow messianic sense. Rydelnik says that when uh, that in the early 90s there was they they believed in that there was one messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, Psalm 110. Okay. And that surprised Andy Woods, who went through in the nice He had they, he said, well, his time there were three passages, and other times there were zero passages. I had a number of these professors I found out didn't believe it, that there were any messianic prophecies in a literal sense, and even some. A good guy, Gene Merrill, who's usually right on target on on all these controversial issues, and one, was one of the most conservative in the Old Testament department at that time. Uh, he accepted Davidic authorship, but this wasn't messianic in the narrow sense. So it's it's very difficult, very confusing for people in the pew to realize that that this kind of confusion exists at the at the academic and the seminary level. For example, another scholar, quite bright, this this individual, he he has a lot of accomplishments, quite intelligent. But when I read these guys, I often think about Romans one that professing to be wise, they became fools. They have great academic accomplishments, but they they don't get it. And so he says, thus it seems reasonable that Psalm 110 refers to Solomon's second coronation in 971 B.C., when David abdicated his throne to his son Solomon. He goes on to say, David did not speak the psalm to the Messiah, the divine Lord. Got his Ph.D. in Old Testament studies from Dallas Seminary. And he's taught at almost every top evangelical seminary in the last several years, and plus written a number of books. Quite accomplished, but wrong. An older scholar, 19th century, some of you have heard of the Kylan Delich commentary on the Old Testament. He was a Jewish believer in Jesus as Messiah. And he rejected almost every other Messianic psalm as Messianic, except for Psalm 110. And he said about Psalm 110, David looks looks forth into the future of his seed and has the Messiah definitely before his mind. He goes on to say the Messiah stands objectively before the mind of David. But it's not just Psalm 110. It's a lot of other psalms as well, but we've looked at that in the past and we'll look at it in the future. So let's look at the text itself. This is so important. It begins, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is very important to look at this because you have two individuals here that are mentioned and described as the Lord. The first one is in all uppercase letters, and if you don't know, when the English translation uses all uppercase letters for either Lord or God. It is translating the Hebrew uh, four-letter name for God, Yahweh, and it refers to God's personal name that is associated with his covenant with Israel. So this is, in this passage, talking about God the Father. And he speaks to another individual, which is identified as David's Lord. And here a different word is used, not Yahweh, but Adonai, which can refer to master or Lord and is another term that refers 
to God, to a divine person who is uh, full full deity. Now, what's interesting is if you're a Jew and you read the text, they don't like to use the name of God. So instead of pronouncing Yahweh, they will either say Hashem, which means the name, or they will say Adonai. Now, here, when we look at this particular passage, it's going to distinguish between these two persons, Yahweh and the one identified as Adonai. Now, what we see in this passage are three things. First of all, that it's talking about the future Messiah King, and it refers to him as being fully divine. He is undiminished deity. That's this first line, the Lord said to my my Lord. The second thing we'll see is that the future Messiah King is at the right hand of God the Father. He is to sit at his right hand, and we have to understand what that means. And the third thing it will tell us is that the future Messiah King is sitting. It's not a position of action. It's a passive position, and he sits to await a future victory. Now, that future victory will be described in verses 5 through 7 at the end of this particular psalm. So it begins with the Lord saying to my Lord, who are these two persons? Here I've got this up on the screen for you. Yahweh says to Adani. Now what's interesting, and I don't want to bore you with a lot of Hebrew, is this last uh, vowel point here, the dot and the what looks like an apostrophe to you, transliterated as this I with the little housetop over it. That suffix means my. And what happens is you have these scholars who deny messianic implication, and they come up with several references to this, and they make this proclamation that this phrase, this term is never used of deity. So they need to go back and do a little homework because in Joshua 5.14 and Judges 6.13, this word, adoni, is used of the Lord God as the angel of the Lord. And in both of those passages, there there are verses immediately following that identify the angel of the Lord as Yahweh. So it is very clear that their argumentation is false and that the word used here for my Lord is not a term referencing either David himself or the author himself or some other human, but is a word that is used to address uh, deity. So you have this statement, Yahweh says to someone who is in authority over David. Now, David is the highest authority in Israel. So the only authority that can be over David is a divine authority. So this clearly indicates at least two persons in the Godhead, God the Father and the Messiah King. They're both viewed as being full deity, and then the word that is used for speaking isn't the normal word that is used for someone saying something or telling somebody else. It is a Hebrew word, na'um, which indicates a prophetic announcement. So a prophetic announcement is saying something that specifically relates to God's revelation and his plan and purposes in history. So this is a profound statement. By using Neum, everybody would sit up and take notice that this is a distinctive statement, that he is to sit at his right hand. So then we come to this second phrase. This second phrase, it talks about 
Christ sitting. The Messiah is to sit. And this sitting at the right hand of the Father is a position of honor and a position of respect. Now, this has to be uh, understood as well because there are some that have overstated the significance of this. Uh, Sitting at the right hand does not indicate deity per se, and it does not indicate that, that perfect authority of God. Why do I say that? It's not the same authority as the one sitting on the throne. Why do I say that? Because in 1 Kings, Solomon has Bathsheba sit at his right hand. Now, he's not saying she has the same authority he has or that he's identical, but it is a position of respect, a position of honor, and a position that has a degree of authority uh, that has a degree of authority associated uh, associated with it. So the sitting at the right hand is a position, uh, an honorific position, a position of authority, and he, but he is not executing the same authority as the one on the throne. And then the third thing it sa- indicates is that the future Messiah King is sitting to await a future victory. He is not seated on his own throne. He's not crowned king yet. And see, what you hear in a lot of contemporary Christian choruses is addressing Jesus as king. Now, you have to think through these things. There are traditional hymns, like All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. You have uh, also crowned him with many crowns that put you as the singer in a future position at the end of the tribulation. And you are singing this, crown him with many crowns. You're not calling upon that at this time. You have to understand the poetic significance, the use of of time shift in these kinds of things. But then in many other courses and some hymns, uh, Jesus is addressed as as if he is king now. Okay, you have to, he is not king now. There's not a kingdom now. The kingdom doesn't come until Jesus returns and establishes the kingdom. So you have to distinguish those things. And so because you have bad theology and bad choruses and bad hymns, people pick up bad ideas. And that's why we have to take time to clearly go through what the scripture says. And so you have this statement that he is to sit until, that that preposition until indicates that a a certain amount of time is going to go by before the next thing happens. He is to sit until God, that's the I, God the Father, makes your enemies and his the, the, the Messiah's enemies and the Father's enemies the same. Until he makes them a, a footstool. And the idea of a footstool is that that when a victor conquers a, a person or a people, they're pictured as putting their foot on them. So it shows that they have been subdued and that they have been destroyed. And so this is, he is to sit until this time comes where his enemies will be subdued. Now, he's the one who will subdue the enemies. That's the last part of the psalm. But he sits until that happens. He's not engaged in defeating those enemies now. He is waiting until the right time comes. 
Psalm, I mean, Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 states this just as well without quoting from the psalm. It alludes to it. And the writer of Hebrews says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. So he's waiting and that's just the first part of this that we, we see. Now, the victory, future victory, is described a little bit in Psalm 110, 2 and 3. We'll hit, hit those briefly. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. A scepter is a sign of your rulership. Will stretch forth your strong scepter. So Yahweh, God the Father, is the one who's going to establish his kingdom. That is, that's what it means by stretching forth your strong scepter from, from Zion. So we know that Jesus returns and will establish his kingdom in Zion, and it is from there that he defeats the enemies of God. And there he's going to rule in the midst of your enemies. He's going to establish a rule of iron, as we'll see in Psalm, Psalm 2. Then in this third verse, we have a problem. I'm just going to summarize it because I don't want to get into all the details. starts off, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, which is, it's the idea that, that they will be dressed in holy splendor, in the beauties of holiness. That should be understood in the sense of uh, uh, in holy splendor. They're set apart. So God's people are going to be coming with him. The church will be coming with him as his soldiers, your people. doesn't say Israel. just says your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the uh, beauties are in holy splendor. And then it says in the, in the English translation, from the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. That is a meaningless translation. What does that even mean in English? Nobody knows. It's very confusing. The NET translates it, the dew of your youth belongs to you. What does that mean? This is meaningless. You have to get into a lot of details of the text, and I'm just going to skip to the end. It means, from the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you. That comes from the Septuagint translation. What happened in the course of the Masoretic text, which is what we use as a basis for translating the Old Testament, the Masoretes would change a few words by change the meaning of a few words by changing the vowels. Remember, originally these words aren't written with vowels. That goes back to also to understanding the Lord said to my Lord. Uh, the only reason you get into some of these confusions is because of the way the vowels are put into that word. But originally, uh, Adonai without the vowels would just look like Adonai or Adonai. They would look the same. Okay, but here, this comes from the Septuagint, and a number of scholars point this out. In fact, one a little bit liberal uh, Scandinavian scholar, Sigmund Malvinkel, says, translates this, from the womb of the dawn I have begotten you, based on the repointing of the Hebrew text. Get rid of the vowels, just read it without the vowels, and you get this, this other meaning. So the Masoretes attempted to remove the messianic implication. Uh, from the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you. What does that remind you of? Psalm 2. So we'll talk about that connection when we come back to talk about Psalm 2. So 
We have Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 that he's waiting. He's waiting for something, waiting for something for those enemies to be made his footstool. Now, the second part of the, of the psalm just emphasizes the priesthood. This current waiting period, he is a, he's a priest. We read in verse 4, the Lord has sworn, sworn and will not relent. He doesn't go back on this. He's addressing my Lord, the Messiah, the Messiah King, future Messiah King. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek was the ruler of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. In Genesis uh, chapter 16, you have the defeat of the kings of the east to come in, and they conquer Sodom, Gomorrah, and all the other uh, cities in the plains, take all of this uh, uh, plunder, and they head north. And Abraham gets his his men together, and they go after them, defeat them, uh, recapture all the plunder. And from the plunder, they they give 10% to the king. Now, that's always used to substantiate tithing. Trouble is, tithing, in their view, is to be 10% of what you have. Abraham isn't giving 10% of what he has. He's giving 10% of what other people had. He's giving 10% of the plunder to Melchizedek, okay? So you can't use that for teaching tithing. You have to be honest with the text. So anyway, Melchizedek was the priest king. He's not Jewish. I think it may be right that the Jewish tradition is that Melchizedek was another name for Shem, the son of Noah that he'd still be alive at this time, and now he's ruling there, and that's a possibility. Uh, Melchizedek is just a name that means king of righteousness. So he is the priest king in Salem, and Abraham gives him a tenth of the plunder, and he, but he's this priest king. So that becomes a pattern for a, another kind of priesthood other than the Levitical priesthood. So Jesus wasn't a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. So therefore, he can't be a Levitical priest, but he is a Melchizedekian priest. He is a royal high priest. And so all believers who are in him have a priesthood related to their position in Christ. Because he is our royal high priest. We are priests in Christ. That is our role. And, and responsibility. So in this verse, we see two things, that God promises a future royal high priest who is the Messiah, and that, the fut- and that he is an everlasting, an eternal royal high priest. Now what we're going to see from here when we go forward is that the future Messiah king will then defeat the enemies of Yahweh, and this is seen in Psalm 2 and Psalm I mean, in Daniel 7. Now, just briefly, Psalm 110, 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. So the Lord here is the Messianic king, Adonai. The Messianic king who is sitting at your right hand. Now, once he can stand up and go, he will execute kings in the day of his wrath. This is sweet and mild Jesus. This is the Jesus that the liberals love, that never has a harsh word about anyone, right? 
let's understand who Jesus is going to be. He is going to come back and he will execute the kings of the nations who are the enemies of God uh, and he will destroy them all. He shall judge among the nations in verse 6. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He will cover Israel with dead bodies as he destroys their enemies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. This indicates refreshment at the end of the battle. And therefore he shall lift up his head. Now we'll, we'll get into this more when we compare it to Psalm, Psalm 2. But this is what's described in Isaiah 63, 1-3. I just had to bring this up. When Jesus returns, he's going to go to a place near, uh, near Petra called Basra, which is where the righteous Jews have fled for protection from God uh, during the last half of the tribulation. And then he's going to come to Jerusalem to destroy the armies of the Antichrist and free those who have been imprisoned in Jerusalem that are, that are believers. And so in Isaiah 63, 1, we read, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? They're dyed red from the blood of his enemies. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? This takes us to Revelation uh, 17, 18 passages that talk about God treading out the winepress of his wrath. I have trodden the winepress alone. This is the Messiah speaking. This is Jesus. I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples. No one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. This is Jesus coming to destroy the enemies of God. This is Psalm 2, which we'll look at uh, next time. Now, how does this all relate to being seated with him? During this intervening period, number one, we're seated with him. We, too, are awaiting the giving of the kingdom. We don't have a militant mission. We are not to bring in the kingdom. We are instead to be involved in a priestly ministry. So since we are not in the kingdom or bringing in the kingdom, this destroys the whole amillennial and postmillennial views and brings us back to the biblical view of the church. This is the second point. Like him, our role is related to our royal priesthood in him. We're to carry out our priestly role. That is growing in our spiritual life. We're to grow and mature so that we can serve Christ in our priestly ministry. We're to carry out the Great Commission. We are to give people the gospel. We are to teach them. Notice it doesn't say preaching. It says teaching, giving instruction on the spiritual life, instruction on uh, God's plan and purposes for church-age believers. We are to be involved in prayer, prayer for one another, but prayer also for those who are outside the church, prayer for those to turn to Christ as they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are to carry out all of the different one another ministries in the church. We're to love one another. We're to serve one another. We're to edify one another. We're to encourage one another. Uh, all of these things are part of our ministry today. This is what it means to be seated together in Christ. We have a role and responsibility in terms of our 
priestly ministry today. So we have to first of all become prepared through a study of the word and spiritual growth. And then we have to carry out all of those different ministries. Now next time we'll come back, we'll go to the next passage, Psalm 68. Won't spend a lot of time there. And then we'll look at, at Psalm 2. And then we will, uh, Daniel 7 and Psalm 2, and put all of that uh, together to see the significance of our identification with Christ in his session with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to just stand in amazement as we read Psalm 110 and its significance for our understanding of who Jesus is, his role, his purpose, his destiny as a ruler, and how he will take control when he is finally commissioned by you to take the kingdoms of man and to judge them. Father, we thank you that we have sure and certain word in Scripture about our salvation, that Christ has died for us, that we are saved by believing in him. And as John 3.18 says, that the basis for condemnation is a failure to believe in him. We pray for any who's listening today, anyone here, that if they've never trusted Christ as Savior, this is your opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would expand our understanding of who we are in Christ as a result of these studies, and that we may have a greater appreciation for our mission as individual believer priests today in this life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.